but yeah, we did talk a little bit about what it would look like if we could uh, program combat AI, being able to give these weapons algorithms and give them presets, kind of templates for what a target looks like. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. China and America are two of the world's great powers. Their economies are intertwined, their military is powerful, and their soft power is spreading across the globe. And tensions are rising. Neither side wants to go to war, but both sides are committed to winning that war should the unthinkable ever occur. Recently, War College's own Kevin Nodell spent time at the Army's Joint Warfighting Assessment at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. The weeks-long training brought together military personnel from seven different countries to train together for a nightmare scenario a new war in the Pacific. Kevin is here to talk to us about that today, and in addition to being the producer at War College, he's also a journalist whose work has appeared in Playboy, The Daily Beast, and McClatchkey. He's also the co-author of several nonfiction graphic novels, including The Stan and Machete Squad. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Okay, so why is America preparing for a war with China? Well, I think there's a few ways to approach that question. Uh, on the one hand, I don't think that, as we said earlier, nobody particularly wants this war. So I don't know that the U.S. military is literally planning for war, but they're planning for the possibility. A lot of that has to come down to um, China's moves in the Pacific recently. It's become uh, much more, I think, assertive is the polite a uh, word that we use when talking about China's more recent actions. It's butting up against its neighbors. It's um, militarizing islands out in the Pacific, and it's trying to assert control over shipping routes in ways that we haven't really seen, um, or I suppose that we have seen, but just much more increasing in recent years. Right. They're literally building their own islands in the Pacific, right? They are literally building their own islands. Okay, so what were the what what were the seven countries that participated in this assessment? Well, the United States, obviously, but also the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, as well as France and Singapore. Singapore, that's an interesting one. Well, Sing- Singapore is actually an interesting one, uh, given that that's going to be where uh, Shanahan is going to be meeting with his Chinese counterpart, uh, I believe, uh, this weekend. Or sometime within the coming I, – I don't know when this is actually going to come out. Uh, Singapore is interesting also because it is a country with a ethnic Chinese majority, though it has historically been aligned more with the United States and the UK, uh, more so than China. But trade has really been increasing between the two countries. Okay, and what does what does something like this look like? Uh, is, it, is it a war game? Is it just military personnel – coming together and talking is it rank and file soldiers like what's what what does it actually look like how does it take place well the answer is yes um all of the above what we were what kind of we were looking at there is at joint base lewis mccord you had officers from all the countries um while 
across the Cascade Mountains, actually, in um, the Yakima Training Center, you had ground troops who were kind of testing out um, new equipment, but also taking direction from the commanders on the other side of the mountain. Um, there, there weren't so much rank and file troops from the other countries. It was mostly staff officers who were coming to learn about these systems and learn about what we would do and how they would have to work together um, better. I know that there had been some discussion about other troops showing up. I think the Australians and uh, the Brits were going to send some ground troops, but it just didn't pan out that way. And it was just the Americans. Okay. So what are some of the threats, especially the technological threats uh, that, that each side is preparing for? Well, on the American side, I know that one of the things that they talked about is much more long range Chinese systems. Um, Chinese have developed uh, new missiles and um, recently apparently uh, tested a railgun um, in January, which is interesting because the United States has been working on the same technology for quite a long time, and we have not entered the testing phase. And that program essentially looks like it's kind of stalling. But the Chinese program, apparently U.S. intelligence believes that that could be part of the Chinese inventory as early as 2025. The Chinese are also um, really investing in their cyber capabilities um, and have been for a long time. Uh, They seem to be way ahead of us when it comes to hacking and uh, doing cyber disruption, being able to hack into systems, um, see intelligence, uh, disrupt systems. Um, That's something that we talked about a lot while we were there. Uh, We didn't really get a lot of specifics about what the Americans are trying to do to harden their systems to make it more difficult for the Chinese to compromise them. Probably because they don't want to give the specifics, um, but it's it's kind of unclear how we're going about to um, to close that gap. There's this sense, and I'm wondering if you felt it too, um, that America is lagging behind, especially in cyber capabilities, and that countries like China and Russia are just better at it than we are. Uh, is that something that, that, that was kind of talked about or like in the air at all? I felt it in the air a little bit, mostly just because I know that to be true. Um, I don't think anybody there wanted to say that or admit how far behind we are. Uh, but I think that that's, that's been acknowledged. Um, now one thing I would say about that is I I'd say that there are obviously a lot of people in the West and in the United States in particular, who are very competent with this, but a lot of them are not in the military or working for the military, um, which is why they've been reaching out so aggressively to Silicon Valley and tech that didn't really come up, but that is something that is worth discussing, I think, and worth being aware of. Can we drill down on it just a little bit? Cause I think it's an interesting topic and it's kind of, and I think it really plays into current tensions between America and China right now, right? You ha- we have this, this essentially this trade war going on, you know, the executive order that was just signed. Is there a sense, just in your own analysis and reporting even, that one of the reasons that China is better at this is because they are a totalitarian, you know, government and system, and they are able to move 
their quote unquote private sector in the directions that they want it to. And we, and you know, the Pentagon has to court Silicon Valley. Uh, I mean, that is an interesting question. I think that there may be some truth to that. Um, though I would say that, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, that also leads to some problems in the way that they do things. Uh, I don't know how adaptive you really are if you are that totalitarian and that top down. Do you think that then the you know bringing it back around to this to this assessment that you watched? Do you think that that is then a weakness of the Chinese military and is our or is the Western side kind of aware of that? And is it is it an exploitable weakness? Uh, I don't know that that really came up. Um, one thing that really did come up is it is a little bit of a mystery what the Chinese capabilities really are. Because, I mean, with, cyber was definitely a big part of this, but uh, also a big part of this was also how we would actually face them were there to be an actual confrontation where troops are fighting other troops and tanks are fighting other tanks. And yet you said uh, something you said when we were talking about this before is that you don't see an invasion of mainland China as being on the table, right? Yeah, well, I just don't see what we would be gaining from it or why we would be doing it. Any confrontation between uh, the United States and China is likely to be somewhere else, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps Taiwan, uh, perhaps over some speck of oil-rich or important strategic rock out in the Pacific. It, it would probably be on an island it could be in Asia, the mainland, but I don't sign it itself. I don't know why we would be doing that unless things got really out of control. Okay. So what does what does that what do they think that, that looks like then? This this tanks and soldiers fighting. And how is it going to be different from any of the wars that we've been fighting recently or in the past? Well, part of it is gonna be um that cyber stuff. Um because one thing that is going to be different is both sides seem to be investing pretty heavily more in drones, both the aerial drones that we've seen, but also uh, land-based robotic systems um, and trying to focus a lot more on unmanning the battlefield and uh, letting machines do the dirty work, which is interesting, but also I think does present some vulnerabilities when you have everything plugged in and is electronic. Uh which they also did say that they are aware of. They are aware that hackers or electronic warfare could really disrupt operations the more we automate things. Right. I think the F-35 is a really good, uh, a really good concrete place to kind of talk about that. Can you, can you speak to some of the vulnerabilities specifically in that system? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to. Uh, they didn't want to, though. Um, yeah, the F-35 is connected online all the time through a system called ALICE. Uh, It stores targeting data, um, maintenance data, uh, and it it is potentially something that can be used to great effect to make uh, maintenance crews and well as well as pilots much more aware about the state of their aircraft, uh, where they are, what they're doing. Uh, But this is all kind of centrally online, and if... uh, the Chinese or the Russians were to crack it, that causes some significant problems. They might be able to look in and see what we're doing, or they might be able to disrupt the operations of these things. And also yes. just in addition, uh, without even them disrupting it, uh, the system the software has had a lot of bugs before. Um, 
think of any time that you've updated your computer and work and you had to call IT to to fix it or something like that. Um, we've had to ground squadrons because they had buggy updates and they had to wait uh, for these things to get fixed until they could get airborne again. So while they can simplify logistics, they can also make logistics much more complicated in that way. It's the autonomic logistics information system. Um, and is my understanding that I, I, the, the F-35 can only fly so long before checking in with one of these systems. Um, so you kind of have to, it kind of has to be grounded at a certain point and like log into this thing. Uh, and the system itself is still running and like, it's not even on windows 10 yet. Uh, they're, they're having trouble getting it upgraded. Um, that's neither, you know, it, it just, I think it's an interesting place that we're extremely vulnerable that, you know, so what, so you said that they didn't want to talk about these things. Like what was their reaction when you would ask them these questions? Well, they, I mean, they were happy to talk about that in a more general sense, but I think the issue came when I, cause I did point out, um, and they, they, they weren't entirely wrong about this. I compared, uh, the F-35 to the A-10 Warthog, um, and pointed out that, uh, the A-10, you can't jam it. You can't hack it because it's not plugged in online all the time. Uh, and the response was sort of that uh, that may be true, but the A10 uh, doesn't have a lot of the features to protect itself from some of the newer threats um, in a conventional war. It, that is very good in a counterinsurgency role against troops that don't have advanced targeting systems, but it might not fare so well in a conventional battlefield. Whereas a complex system like the joint strike fighter would. Um, they, I mean, they acknowledge that there are vulnerabilities, but their, their basic premise was that uh, the strengths outweigh the potential vulnerabilities. It kind of leads into my next question. Um, A10 really good for, you know, some of the wars we're fighting now, right. Um, against low tech insurgents. Um, how is the Pentagon adapting the tools and techniques it's learned in Afghanistan, in Iraq, to the Pacific theater? What are the lessons learned there, and how are they being adapted? Uh, well, from what I could tell, the lesson that they learned is that they don't want to fight wars like that anymore, and they would just rather not. <laughs> so I don't know exactly what we were learning other than their mantra is we, don't want to, we need to fight the war of tomorrow, not the last war. So it seems to me more than anything that they just don't want to do that. Um, I'm not sure what all they learned because, um, yeah, most of the talk was about great power. Let's not think small. Let's think big. Okay, but how do you prepare for the war of tomorrow if you're still fighting the last war? Yeah, that's an interesting question, too. Um, I think that is kind of one of the elephants in the room that the war the war of yesterday it isn't the war of yesterday it's still the war of today and we don't really know when that's going to end I, I yeah i don't have a real good answer for that um I, I think that there's certainly a lot of lessons to be learned from um present operations and okay let's uh let's pivot a little bit what is five eyes and why is it important now and how has it changed over the years Five Eyes is an intelligence uh, gathering alliance um, around the Pacific region, and it's comprised basically of – well, not basically. It is comprised of the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, um, 
Australia and New Zealand. And it was propped up in the 1940s uh, to spy on Japanese movements during World War II. Um, it stuck around uh, during the Cold War um, to check on whatever the Soviets were doing in the Pacific. Uh, and it has endured. And today it now is used to check on what uh, the Chinese are doing, what North Korea is doing. Now, when you, we call it an intelligence network, like, do we mean human assets? Like, what is it? What does it actually look like? Or do we know? Uh, it, it, I, it's more the, the technology stuff. It's more signal intelligence and also um, surveillance systems, uh, you know, the eyes, if you will. Uh, I think there's a lot of other facets to it. But basically what it is, is it's about intelligence sharing. It's about making sure that if uh, the like if the Canadians see something interesting that seems worth sharing that the Americans and the UK and the Australians and the Kiwis also get to know about it. Um, so, so it's about sharing intelligence and sharing resources to gather intelligence. And Japan has been contributing to it recently too, right? Recently to a degree, there's been some cooperation with it though. It, it needs to be stressed that um, it's not one of the eyes it's, it's five eyes, not six eyes yet. Yeah, so Japan is not uh, one of the eyes yet. Um, it is not uh, the sixth eye. Um, I, I, we kind of touched on this in a previous uh, episode when we had uh, Kimberly Westenheiser on talking about uh, the Japanese ground self-defense force and uh, Japanese policy. That one of the reasons I think that Japan hasn't brought been brought fully into the fold, though there are plenty of advocates for it, is that they've been deemed to be even weaker on cybersecurity than we are. Uh, so while they have a lot of assets that could be, they have a lot of knowledge and a lot of great assets for gathering intelligence, they may not be great at protecting uh, that intelligence, and particularly if they are part of the network as well. Did you see any new technologies? Like, was anybody in robot suits or anything cool? No robot suits, but there was there were some cool like battle bots, is what I would probably call them. They were playing around with. Um, what we would call concepts, I think. So they are—they aren't exactly the the vehicles that we would probably be seeing once they're actually done. But they're working on them. Uh, one of them was a breaching vehicle for um, taking out minefields, uh, breaking down barriers, uh, and it was—they basically made it out of the hole of a an M1 A1 Abrams tank. But it was part of what they're calling the optionally manned systems. So what it is is it's a these are vehicles that you can automate a lot of uh, the processes. And this is something that is smart because we talked a little bit about how you can jam a robotic system. Um, you actually can do it manually. You can put troops into it, but you can also uh, take troops out of it and operate them remotely. Um, and commanders can make that decision to plug troops in or take them out. And it seems like they're doing that by taking older equipment and retrofitting it. Yeah, that was, I mean, in the experimental phase right now, that's exactly what they're doing. Because, yeah, like I said, the, they're more concepts than even prototypes. Um, and it's mostly old, some of, some of it fairly old equipment. Uh, they they brought out an old uh, M58, which the Army really doesn't use very often, uh, an old tracked uh, scout vehicle, and retrofitted that and put a machine gun on it and used it as a, to lay down suppressing fire uh, for the breaching vehicles as they were moving forward. 
the idea being that you can just call on um, other vehicles for support. So you could do the breaching almost automated and uh, also have the support fire be automated. Though actually when we say automated, uh, I need to stress that these are usually being we, – we, we use the term unmanned vehicle, but somebody is controlling these things more often than not. Remotely operated. Right. Which uh, we can get into why that's a little important because um, the military has has kind of taken for granted that these things are easy to use, um, but uh, they actually are fairly complex systems. Well, yeah, let's dig into that then. Uh, why do you think that that's a danger? Well, not, not necessarily a danger, but something that uh, we need to be cognizant of and aware of. Um, I think when you rely on the robot um and and also when we add software and add all these features um they need to be maintained and also that um the the operators can't operate these things indefinitely because it's not a robot uh i mean it is a robot but it's not the terminator uh it will the operator will have to stop or you'll have to trade operators or something um the reason why we should be aware of this is actually uh, some reporting uh, by our both of our former boss, uh, David Axe, at uh, the Daily Beast. Uh, a few years back, he reported on how hard um, the Air Force was pushing its drone workforce. Um, people were working very long hours, um, and they, they were keeping pilots operating because, the, because it's just a robot. They could uh, keep the operator chugging energy drinks in, a, in an air-conditioned room, but uh, these guys were doing it for very, very long hours and sometimes swapping out uh, mid-mission and just keeping these things going. Um, and also the maintenance personnel uh, were very busy all the time because uh, we, we were just using and using and using and using these drones uh, without, with the assumption that because the drones aren't going to get tired, we weren't thinking about how tired the operators were starting to get and how miserable it was starting to get for them. Right, we think it, it's funny when we've got the when we have the UAVs in the in the sky, we we tend we forget that they're being piloted by someone, you know, in a shipping in an air conditioned shipping container halfway across the globe, and you know, we we forget about that human element, uh, and also push the machines too hard too, like you said. So one of the big buzzwords we've t- we've kind of lighted on this a couple times is this idea of cyber war. There's been a couple. I have issues with this uh, because it, it, like artificial intelligence uh, in the military, I think we don't have a lot of concrete discussions about what it actually looks like. Along with cyber war, another one of the big buzzwords that I'm hearing a lot, but I don't get a lot of concrete information on is artificial intelligence in the military. Um, and you were interested. We're talking about these drones, and they're being and they're being pilot, you know, being piloted by people that that are being worn out and it's not exactly a prestigious position that a lot of people want. Have we toyed with the idea of letting AI drive some of these killing machines? Um, well, yeah. And we talked a lot about AI and also, uh, various software, software and applications and how, uh, they're using them. And some of them are being used in some really cool and interesting ways. And some of them are being used in ways that I think we need to have longer discussions about one, one that I was particularly impressed with was a, a drone, an aerial drone that the scouts were using um, out there. And it has some really interesting um, features and in how it's able to feed information to them. 
it has a bridge classification app that can look at a bridge and evaluate and tell you what kind of bridge it is and roughly how much weight uh, it predicts that it could hold. Uh, and it can also do a lot of measurement of terrain features that it used to be that scouts would have to go out with like a ruler and binoculars and kind of build the lay of the land that way. This drone can basically go out and do that and get all that information for them and then come back to them. And it's plugged into a system that can send that directly to commanders to get um, like route information of what it looks like and what they're going to be sending people down. That was uh, fairly impressive. We had talked a little bit before we hopped on the air about some auto-targeting systems that they were talking about. The big Before we talk about, um, yeah, the targeting systems, I think what's most realistic and what they're, they're thinking about more in the immediate future is using AI for logistics. Uh, for simpling tasks like simplifying tasks like that, they talked about how they might be able to program uh, routes or program vehicles to be able to understand uh, routes and just move uh, without operators or with a handful of operators. Like the idea that maybe you could command like a a squad's worth of uh, of cargo trucks and have them be able to figure out how to get in formation and uh, move mostly by themselves. That, I think, is what they're looking at more in the immediate term. But yeah, we did talk a little bit about what it would look like if we could uh, program combat AI, being able to give these weapons algorithms and give them presets, kind of templates for what a target looks like, and being able to tell them, hey, you know, this this area over here, shoot at all the things right over here. That a commander might be able to do that while his troops are engaging one area, they might be able to tell robots to engage another area. Now, they've said, or I think the Air Force has said for a long time, uh, that there would always be a human being making the decision to fire the weapon. Is that maybe being backed away from a little bit? Um, so that was interesting because um, I, got, I got different answers depending on who I talked to. In general, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. And they, what they said is there will always be a human element. They... They're not going to just completely let the machine do whatever it's, it wants, but they they did talk about autonomous targeting, and they said it pretty ex- – at least um, a, f- a few officers talked about that explicitly. One person actually came afterwards and said, well, yeah, but um, it, it'll always be up to uh, the person to, uh, to, pull, to pull that trigger to approve that target. But then immediately after, somebody else said, for now. So they're, they're exploring – to what degree this technology could get better. I mean, they, they are thinking ahead. Uh, the technology isn't there yet to the point where they're comfortable with it, but they are thinking that maybe someday it could be. Well, and it also sounds like you're inching ever and ever closer to just letting the robot do it. If you're talking about essentially using a robot to do all the targeting, to do all the targeting and the robot's going to fire the weapon. But if somebody at some point just kind of comes in and looks at it and says, okay, yeah, that looks good. I mean, at that point, you're just you're basically just putting in a human check into the system, and I feel like that's easier at some point. You know, this is just my opinion. To that's uh, it's easier at that point to kind of drift into the place where we do have AI that are just doing the combat for us. 
Yeah, and that was something that I thought about when I was listening to some of the answers. Uh, I mean, they, they're still pretty insistent that that's not going to be the case, and they just won't won't let that happen. You know, I, and I don't think anybody has the intention of of that necessarily being the case. I don't think that's necessarily what they want. But I couldn't help but think of the opening scene of uh, of RoboCop, where that guy gets killed in the in the boardroom. Like I I thought about that. Talking about the classic, the the good one, not the one that opens with a war and a run. No, no. Okay. Uh, the, the I don't know. I don't know what what film you're referring to. <laughs> you just don't acknowledge that the RoboCop reboot even happened. Uh, what are you talking about, Matthew? There was literally. Do you, are you being serious right now? No, I'm not being serious. Okay. <laughs> Michael Keaton was in it. He was actually kind of good, but the movie sucked. Um. Anyway, anyway. Uh. God, so many interesting ideas like in that movie that they just couldn't quite pull off. Like Samuel L. Jackson being kind of this reactionary news host and opening with like drones conducting a war in Iran. It just didn't work at all, though. Unfortunately. All right. So backing away from that. Uh, kind of, I want to go out talking about the idea of uh, the battle space for fighting in Asia would be completely different than I think anything that we've that anything that America has done um, in a possibly ever. I'm talking about fighting in megacities. How do you prepare for that battle space? We talked a little bit about that. Um, so this is an area that they were training for um, and training in Yakima. There, there wasn't so much urban that I saw. It, it was the scenario was it taking place on a Pacific island. Uh, I don't know how populated they were envisioning it being, but um, I, I definitely brought that up, and I brought that up specifically in terms of what we were just talking about with uh, these uh, robotic systems. Um, because it's hard enough to ask AI to be able to navigate um, like hills and and winding canyons, but 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 asking AI to to navigate a, a densely populated megacity that's something else even. Because um, that that was actually one of the things that I did ask them specifically was um, if we were to see comparing it actually to something that we have done recently, uh, which was the battles of Mosul and Raqqa. Um, which got pretty, pretty nasty. Um, if we had autonomous robots who were picking targets and maybe picking the correct targets, but targets that could be in close proximity to a lot of people or a lot of infrastructure, or a lot of property, and uh, these things can just attack, is that something we need to be concerned about? Um, and uh, thankfully, they did say that, uh, yes, that is something that they would think about. And that would also affect whether they would want to use AI in an environment like that. Uh, they said, maybe we would, uh, maybe we wouldn't do that, but maybe we would, depending on what intelligence said and what the technology looks like at that point. But yeah, at this point, certainly, uh, nobody would be comfortable with, uh, that being the case. I think that that's uh, a horrifying place to go out on as we kind of like to do. Um, the idea of AI going through mega cities and picking targets, uh, Kevin Nodell, <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on War College uh, and leaving the producer's chair and getting in front of the microphone. Uh, and you are writing about this for Coffee or Die, correct? And you've it's going to be two or three parts. Uh, two parts, I believe. Uh, part okay, no. one is up, and depending on when this is out, uh, the, the second part may have come out by then as well. Uh, one thing I do want to actually clarify, though. 
they, they they did stress to me that they don't necessarily. I mean, maybe maybe in the future, depending on what it looks like, but uh, they they are not advocating for AI combing the streets of megacities uh, looking for targets. Uh, they they when I when I asked about that, that sounded to them like not something we want. <laughs> I don't think that's something anybody wants. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. War College is me, Matthew Galt, Kevin O'Dell, and Derek Gannon. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. Kevin will be away for a while as he travels through the Middle East. We'll be sure to talk to him about what he saw there as soon as he's back. Derek will also be back soon. If you like the show, please like and subscribe. You can find us on iTunes at and on Twitter at war underscore college. We'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe.